Welcome everyone to another regularly scheduled rerun, but wait, this is not a complete rerun because I have changed the ending and added new content, so stick around for that. Uh, for the rerun today, we are revisiting the concept of a cap and dividend policy to address greenhouse gas emissions, and it's presented in this episode largely as an idea friendly to conservatives trying to bridge the gap, but actually it has a broad base of support across the ideological spectrum. Um, but then after I played this episode about a year ago, Ago, there were a couple of lingering questions from listeners that I don't think were ever fully answered, so I want to address those today. And if you want to skip straight to the new stuff, go to around minute 54. Now, on a personal note, I want to thank again everyone who donated to my Climate Ride fundraiser who helped send me to Bhutan. I'm happy to say that I have completed six days of cycling and hiking through the Himalayan Kingdom and lived to tell about it as soon as I catch my breath. I did try to train for the ride, but I was actually at sea level for all of the months leading up to the trip, so uh, I was pretty seriously unprepared for the altitude, and that was a bit tough. So I'm planning on a full episode to talk about the experience and to fill in more details about the culture, history, and politics of Bhutan and, and relevant connections to the outside world as well, I hope, uh, as best as I'm able anyway. So look forward to that next week. But for now, enjoy last year's episode on cap and dividend, followed by today's new material starting at about minute 54. Yes, folks, a Republican climate solution is possible. And you know what? It may even be better. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today including TED Talks from former Republican Congressman Bob Inglis and author and entrepreneur Ted Halstead, an interview with evangelical Reverend Mitch Hescox on the regional PBS series Immense Possibilities, a field report from Democracy at Works economic update, and finishing with another interview on immense possibilities with Bob Inglis. When I um, first went to Congress, I said that climate change was a bunch of hooey. Um, Al Gore's imagination had a very successful press conference one time, sacks of coal, wood for a fire burning, and uh, we said uh, Al Gore is going to raise these poor people's energy prices here in the cold Greenville, South Carolina. Of course, not many people heat with coal or wood in Greenville, South Carolina. Some do. Very successful press conference. It was all based on ignorance for me. I had not looked into the facts at all. All I knew was that Al Gore was for it, and therefore I was against it. <laughs> because I represented perhaps the reddest district in the reddest state in the nation, Greenville, Spartanburg, South Carolina. Now, I'll fight you for that distinction. There may be some dis districts uh, in other parts of the country that think that they are the reddest district, but I think ours is probably the reddest district in the reddest state in the nation. I was out of Congress for six years thereafter and uh, practicing commercial real estate law again. My son came to me when I was running for Congress again in 04. He was voting for the first time. He just turned 18. And uh, he said to me, Dad, I'll vote for you, but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. <laughs> it's the first of three steps in a change for me, because now I had this new constituency. 
Um, my son, his four sisters, his mother, all agreed. All of whom could change the locks on the doors. And so I had to respond to this constituency. Second step for me was getting on science committee. I'm not a scientist. I just played one when the lights came on at science committee. Um, but I got the opportunity to go to Antarctica and saw in the ice core drillings at the South Pole the evidence. This is pretty clear. Long stability followed by an uptick in CO2 that coincides with the Industrial Revolution. If I burn logs in my fireplace this winter, not so necessary in South Carolina, but we do it. Uh, it's no big deal. That tree off my little farmette had just recently been sinking CO2 out of the air. If I burn it and release it, it's no big deal. But if I go deep into the earth and pull up trees and vegetation, animals that have long been gone under heat, time, and pressure, turned into fossil fuels, bring them up, burn them. I change the chemistry of the air. The physics of light are such that light enters, radiant heat doesn't escape. We have warming. So I saw that evidence in Antarctica. Third step for me was actually, amazingly, a, a, another opportunity to go to Antarctica. Usually you don't get the chance. By the way, uh, advice for you. If you're ever running for Congress, um, what you want to do is make sure to go only to places that um, are cold uh, on trips. Because if it's cold in your district and you are traveling, say, to a place with white sandy beaches and uh, warm waters, your constituents will get upset with you. But nobody ever complained, even in the reddest district in the reddest state, about me going to Antarctica a second time. There was a seat available. They said, listen, we've got a cancellation. You want to go? I said, are you kidding me? Of course I want to go. It's fabulous. So I went and got surprised by, like I say, the third step in my change. Uh, we had the opportunity to go to the Great Barrier Reef and see coral bleaching. And I was inspired by an Aussie climate scientist who shares my worldview and who, in the course of snorkeling with him, I figured out that we shared a worldview, that he was worshiping God in the creation, not worshiping the creation, but worshiping the God behind the creation. Subsequently, I had plenty of time to talk with him, and he talked to me about changing his life to love God and love people, people that he would never know, could never know, because they'll come along after us. So I was inspired by Scott. I came home and I introduced the Raise Wages Cut Carbon Act of 2009. Note to self, do not introduce carbon tax in midst of a great recession because people will not like that. Um, so there I was uh, defending this action and you can really see... Um, my political life as a measuring life for action on energy and climate. First six years, like I, say, was, I said, it was Huey, is out six years, came back for another six. By the way, I thought it'd be a lot longer than six that second time around. We said it was Inglis 2.0, the new and improved version. Um, but they were having a tea party um, in, um, in uh, June of 2010 in uh, the 4th District of South Carolina, and I got specifically uninvited to said tea party. I thought it was a nice enough fella should be invited. I was uninvited. Um, but if you look at my measuring life, my political life is a measuring life of action on energy and climate. It's, it is, it tracks. 
In 04, when I ran again and with that new constituency, my son and his four sisters, my wife, um, I said that energy security was going to be my main thing. The district said, okay, English, that's a little bit strange, but go ahead. Um, the economy was good. Um, then came uh, 06, 06, still the economy was good. Fine, English, a little bit weird, but um, we have General Electric making wind turbines here. We got Michelin making low rolling resistance tires, and we got BMW talking about hydrogen cars. Um, BMW makes cars in Spartanburg, South Carolina. By the way, BMW means Bubba makes wheels. I don't know if you knew that or not. But so we were persuaded that, uh, that action on energy and energy security made sense even in this district. And it was fine. Thank goodness the Republican primary was in June of 2008, not later, because as you recall, the collapse started, uh, and uh, that, uh, as, as that came to the end, end of that year. And so, um, but 10 we knew was going to be a difficult cycle. And it turned out to be a very difficult cycle. And having been reelected in 2004 with 85% of the primary vote, going to losing the 2010 primary with only 29% of the vote, identify with uh, Rick Perry. It's a spectacular face plant. Um, and so... Um, uh, but here's the thing. I, having now been declared a heretic, am, am out on the street proclaiming it. Because I figure that once you're described as a heretic, just go right down Main Street parading and saying you're a heretic. And so, so I have the, uh, I have the uh, wonderful opportunity now to travel the country and tell the champions of free enterprise to overcome their inferiority complex, they apparently think they're no good at energy and climate. And so when the topic comes up, my friends, my conservative friends, the people that I identify with, shrink in science denial because we think we're no good. But actually, we're very good. We're the kid in class who has the answer. Raise your hand. You got the answer. It's free enterprise, and you have known it all along. What it takes is simply this, a true cost comparison between the competing fuels. Put all the cost in, take all the subsidies out, and free enterprise can fix climate change. As many of you know, there's something about becoming a parent that concentrates the mind on long-term problems like climate change. It was the birth of my daughter that inspired me to launch this climate organization in order to counteract the excessive polarization of this issue in the United States and to find a conservative pathway forward. Yes, folks, a Republican climate solution is possible. And you know what? 
It may even be better. <laughs> Let me try to prove that to you. What we really need is a killer app to climate policy. In the technology world, a killer app is an application so transformative that it creates its own market, like Uber. In the climate world, a killer app is a new solution so promising that it can break through the seemingly insurmountable barriers to progress. These include the psychological barrier. Climate advocates have long been encouraging their fellow citizens to make short-term sacrifices now for benefits that accrue to other people in other countries 30 or 40 years in the future. It just doesn't fly because it runs contrary to basic human nature. Next is the geopolitical barrier. Under the current rules of global trade, countries have a strong incentive to free ride off the emissions reductions of other nations instead of strengthening their own programs. This has been the curse of every international climate negotiations, including Paris. Finally, we have the partisan barrier. Even the most committed countries, Germany, the United Kingdom, Canada, are nowhere near reducing emissions at the required scale and speed, not even close. And the partisan climate divide is far more acute here in the United States. We are fundamentally stuck, and that is why we need a killer app of climate policy to break through each of these barriers. I'm convinced that the road to climate progress in the United States runs through the Republican Party and the business community. So in launching the Climate Leadership Council, I started by reaching out to a who's who of Republican elder statesmen and business leaders, including James Baker and George Shultz, the two most respected Republican elder statesmen in America. Martin Feldstein and Greg Mankiw, the two most respected conservative economists in the country. And Henry Paulson and Rob Walton, two of the most successful and admired business leaders. Together, we co-authored the conservative case for carbon dividends. This represents the first time that Republican leaders put forth a concrete market-based climate solution. Thank you. We presented our plan at the White House two weeks after President Trump moved in. Almost every leading editorial board in the country has since endorsed our plan. And Fortune 100 companies from a wide range of industries are now getting behind it. So by now you're probably wondering, what exactly is this plan? Well, our carbon dividend solution is based on four pillars. The first is a gradually rising carbon tax. Although capitalism is a wonderful system, like many operating systems, it's prone to bugs, which in this case are called market failures. By far the largest is that market prices fail to take social and environmental costs into account. That means that every market transaction is based on incorrect information. And this fundamental bug of capitalism, more than any other single factor, is to blame for a climate predicament. Now, in theory, this should be an easy problem to fix. Economists agree that the best solution is to put a price on the carbon content of fossil fuels, otherwise known as a carbon tax. 
This would discourage carbon emissions in every single economic transaction every day of the year. However, a carbon tax by itself has proven to be unpopular and a political dead end. The answer is to return all the money raised directly to citizens in the form of equal monthly dividends. This would transform an unpopular carbon tax into a popular and populist solution. And it would also solve the underlying psychological barrier that we discussed by giving everyone a concrete benefit in the here and now. And these benefits would be significant. Assuming a carbon tax rate that starts at $40 per ton, a family of four would receive $2,000 per year from the get-go. According to the U.S. Treasury Department, the bottom 70% of Americans would receive more in dividends than they would pay in increased energy prices. That means that 223 million Americans would win economically from solving climate change. And that is revolutionary and could fundamentally alter climate politics. But there is another revolutionary element here. The amount of the dividend would grow as the carbon tax rate increases. The more we protect our climate, the more our citizens benefit. This creates a positive feedback loop, which is crucial because the only way we will reach our long-term emission reduction goals is if the carbon tax rate goes up every year. The third pillar of our program is eliminating regulations that are no longer needed once that a carbon dividends plan is enacted. This is a key selling point to, to Republicans and business leaders. So why should we trade climate regulations for a price on carbon? Well, let me show you. Our plan would achieve nearly twice the emissions reductions of all Obama-era climate regulations combined, and nearly three times the new baseline after President Trump repeals all of those regulations. That assumes a carbon tax starting at $40 per ton, which translates into roughly an extra 36 cents per, ga per gallon of gas. Our plan by itself would meet the high end of America's commitment under the Paris Climate Agreement. And as you can see, the emissions reductions would continue over time. This illustrates the power of a conservative climate solution based on free markets and limited government. We would end up with less regulation and far less pollution at the same time while helping working class Americans get ahead. Doesn't that sound like something we could all support? The fourth and final pillar of our program is a new climate domino effect based on border carbon adjustments. Now, that may sound complicated, but it too is revolutionary because it provides us a whole new strategy to reach a global price on carbon, which is ultimately what we need. Let me show you an example. Uh, suppose that country A adopts a carbon dividends plan and country B does not. Well, to level the playing field, 
and protect the competitiveness of its industries, country A would tax imports from country B based on their carbon content. Fair enough. But here's where it gets really interesting, because the money raised at the border would increase the dividends going to the citizens of country A. Well, how long do you think it would take the public in country B to realize that that money should be going to them and to push for a carbon dividends plan in their own land? Add a few more countries and we get a new climate domino effect. Once that one major country or region adopts carbon dividends with border or carbon adjustments, other countries are compelled to follow suit. One by one, the dominoes fall. And this domino effect could start anywhere. My preference, strongly, is the United States. But it could also start in the United Kingdom, in Germany or another European country, or even in China. Let's take China as an example. China is committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But what its leaders care even more about is transitioning their economy to consumer-led economic development. Well, nothing could do more to hasten that transition than giving every Chinese citizen a monthly dividend. In fact, this is the only policy solution that would enable China to meet its environmental and economic goals at the same time. That's why this is the killer app of climate policy, because it would enable us to overcome each of the barriers we discussed earlier, the psychological barrier, the partisan barrier, and as we've just seen, the geopolitical barrier. All we need is a country to lead the way. And one method of finding what you're looking for is to take out an ad. So let's read this one together. Wanted, country to pioneer carbon dividends plan. Cost a country, zero. Starting date, as soon as possible. Advantages, most effective climate solution. Popular and populist, pro-growth and pro-business. Shrinks government and helps the working class. Additional compensation, gratitude of current and future generations, including my daughter. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Just one question. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm actually not sure I've seen a conservative get a standing O uh, uh, before that. It's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> So, so, I mean, the logic seems really powerful, but um, some people you talk to in politics say, you know, it's, it's, a, it's hard to imagine this still getting through Congress. How are you feeling about momentum behind this? So, I understand that many are very pessimistic about what's happening in the United States with President Trump. I'm less pessimistic. Here's why. The actions of this White House, the early actions on climate, are just the first move in a complex game of climate chess. So far, it's been a repeal-only strategy. The pressure is going to mount for a replacement program, which is where we come in. And there are three reasons why, which I'll go through real quickly. One, the business community is fundamentally parting ways with the White House on climate change. In fact, we're finding a number of Fortune 100 companies supporting our program. Within two months, we're going to be announcing some really surprising names coming out in favor of this program. Two. There is no issue in American politics where there's a more fundamental gap between the Republican base and the Republican leadership than climate change. And three, thinking of this analogy of chess, 
The big decision up ahead is, does the administration stay in Paris? Well, let's pan it out both ways. If it stays in Paris, as many are pushing for in the administration, well, then that begs the question, what's the plan? We have the plan. But if they don't stay in Paris, the international pressure will be overwhelming. Our Secretary of State will be asking other countries for NATO contributions, and they'll be saying, no, give us our Paris commitment. Come through on your commitments, we'll come through on ours. So international business and even the Republican base will all be calling for a Republican replacement plan, and hopefully we've provided one. I'm not like you. In terms of fighting climate change, one of the most effective pieces of low-hanging fruit to start our shift to a renewable energy future is to sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than that of old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly indefinitely. To sign up, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best. If they don't service your area now, they have plans to come your way soon. So don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you may think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. Now, the thing that's very attractive, I hope, to conservatives who may be listening is that this really does fit with our idea of limited government. Because there's a very small role for the government here. It's basically just being the cop on the beat that brings accountability, even biblical accountability. Because, you know, I at Inglis Industries can't do something on my property or at my plant that harms your property, that violates biblical law, English common law, American common law, And it's just wrong for me to be able to do that. So if we say to ourselves, we know we want to insist that the polluters pay. They pay for this discharge, for these emissions, at the marginal harm they're causing for that last ton of CO2. Now, we'll have a big debate about what that price should be. That's uh, something that economists can help us some with, scientists can help us some with, but in the end, it's a free people deciding, making a value judgment about what that price should be. But along the way, also happy for conservatives, we can eliminate all the subsidies for all the fuels. We got very upset about Solyndra, direct subsidy to a company that went bust. I think it is bad that they went bust and that we subsidized them. What we want to do at the Energy Enterprise Initiative is eliminate all those subsidies. Eliminate the production tax credit for wind, too. But end the big, and, uh, and uh, uh, take away any other sort of props that government gives to particular, to particular fuels. But we want to eliminate the biggest subsidy of all, which is the ability to belch and burn for free without accountability. That's the one that causes a market distortion. So we fix that market distortion, and then we have the opportunity to lead in this area. 
Now, if I'm speaking to some conservatives here, let me suggest to you what happens. You go into an audience of conservatives, you, you speak, you ask for questions after you presented what is bedrock conservatism. Uh, by the way, for the progressives in the crowd, if it sounds familiar, Al Gore has been talking about this for about 35 years. Um, and the good news is that Art Laffer, who is one of our helpers in this, if you go to our website, you'll see him explaining in two minutes what I've just explained in a longer period of time. Uh, Art Laffer is very good to constantly protect Al Gore's reputation. He says, you know, that Al Gore has always been for revenue-neutral carbon tax, not for new revenue, which is one of the many problems that cap-and-trade had. But if you go speak to that audience and you get through to them, you get through to them that there are people like Art Laffer that are with us, and George Schultz, and Greg Mankiw, and Arglin Hubbard. These are economists or leaders that are clearly conservative. But when you watch the audience, you ask for questions afterwards, you notice that no hands go up. Because a few loud mouths in the crowd have succeeded in cultural norming and causing everyone to sit there not willing to cross the current tribal orthodoxy. So, you look at the crowd, though, and you see that conservative who desperately wants her party to be relevant to her future. You see the hunter and the angler who know things have changed. You see the libertarian who passionately believes in free enterprise and accountable markets. And you see the entrepreneur with some dollar signs. Um, And you realize that this can happen if a few people will speak up and say, you bet this is conservatism. And if it fits with what Al Gore is saying, well, fine. But it's bedrock conservatism to fix this. And then what we see is this opportunity to do something that we really want to do that's beyond all these problems in the simple solution, but rather get beyond to a big dream, which is to light up the whole world with more energy, more mobility, more freedom. And this, I would say to you, if you're progressive here, is just understand that this is a place where a rub comes between you and conservatives. Because way too many conservatives here, way too many progressives talking about doing with less. And we have the sense that we're going to walk and eat bugs. (laughs) Or perhaps that we're going to shiver or sweat in the dark, depending on the time of year. And most people say, you know, that's not very attractive. Um, Especially conservatives. So... Consider, if you're that progressive, that maybe it's not that. Maybe there is a moral obligation to figure out a way to do energy so much better, and perhaps in a distributed way, so that we can light up the developing world. So that actually those people can join us in in being able to express their creativity in ways that they couldn't when their homes were dark. So all this takes, really, is conservatives joining this effort, because I must say to you, if you're a progressive, behold in them your indispensable partners for action. It will not happen without them. 
There are not enough votes in Congress to ram this through. It did not work for Waxman-Markey, and it won't work only on the left. Somehow, we have to convince conservatives, the champions of free enterprise, that this fits with exactly what they deeply believe, and then join all together and make it so we solve this problem. And gradually, I started to see, especially after I became a pastor, the impacts of what pollution does on our children, and especially people in the majority world. And that really led me to becoming the president, or I think what God had in store for me, to become the president of EEN. EEN is the Evangelical Environmental Network, and its president is the Reverend Mitch Hescox. Mitch, welcome to Immense Possibilities. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The energizing heart of your work is creation care. Tell us what that is. Creation care is simply the biblical response to caring for God's creation. In Genesis 2.15, we're commanded to, to, to tend the garden. And so we believe if creation, the whole earth, everything in it belongs to God, then we have a responsibility to steward it, to care for it, to shepherd it. Mitch, there's no one who thinks that all evangelicals are climate deniers or vice versa, and you're disproving that notion every day in your work. But there is seeming to be a large overlap between the two groups. Why is that? And many evangelicals, in fact, most evangelicals have a conservative ideological view. They're Republicans, maybe even more conservative than that. And so when they heard the word climate change, it was always associated with things like the former Vice President Al Gore, about big government, whether it was the EPA or cap and trade. The icon of climate change for many years has been the polar bear. And while we care for all of God's creation, a polar bear is not going to move the evangelical community to action, but our children will, especially caring about our unborn children. And that's what we talk about. Most of our work is how we equate being pro-life as a creation care matter. Already in the United States, one in three children suffer from asthma, autism, ADHD, and severe allergies on how we use petrochemicals and fossil fuels. Over half of America has pollution that is unfit for our kids to breathe and we're exacerbating asthma around the world. So talking about things that impact our children and impacting their lives and health right now is a really a very, the way that we talk about climate change, which is real, which is true. And when we share that message using the values of my community, 98% of the people come on board. And you have commonly had the experience of explaining that to Christians and having them really revisit their views in a pretty quick way. When I first became president of EEN eight years ago, we had about 15,000 people that have taken action. 
Today, we have about two and a half million pro-life Christians who have taken action. So we've gained speed, we've gained momentum, but evangelicals are somewhere between 80 and 90 million people in the United States. And 2.5 is a good start, but we want to get up to 25 or 30 million in the next couple of years. Aha. Uh-huh. I wonder if you ever run into a Christian who would say, look, an almighty God clearly has control over the climate and its future, so this isn't anything we have to worry about. Oh, absolutely. We, you know, in theological terms, that's called dominion theology, that God takes care of everything. And contrary, Scripture says just the opposite. In Isaiah chapter 24, it says human beings destroy the earth because they don't follow God's commandments. In fact, I often tell people that the basic handbook of sustainability is right in the Bible. Do you encourage churchgoers to initiate conversations about climate in their congregations if those conversations aren't going on? Oh, absolutely. That's one of the things we're at. We, we do on a regular basis. We have currently somewhere around 1,200 what we call creation care champions around the country, and they are volunteers who have heard a passion to care about God's creation, to maybe pray about it, to teach a Sunday school class about it, to start an energy efficiency program about it, to start a community garden about it. Do some people feel like it's risky to bring this up in their churches? I think that some probably do, but I think that what we want to do is talk about grace. And I think what's one of the things that's wrong with our nation today is that, you know, we've siloed ourselves into these ideological bastions of, you know, left, right, and whatever, and we're not willing to listen to people. I give a significant amount of time to listen to people, to hear their concerns, and to answer them in truthful and realistic ways, and be honest. And when you allow people to get their feelings out, it's a lot easier for them to change and be open to new ideas if you really listen to their heart. You know, for far too long, the evangelical church has really been concerned about getting people to heaven and the idea of what I say, getting our tickets punched. While certainly that's an important part of Christianity, believing in an afterlife, the more important part of Christianity is building God's kingdom by following Jesus, our risen Lord. And I think that's one of the messages that's coming around to the evangelical church, to be more engaged on social issues, on standing up for justice and righteousness, and following Jesus to building a better world. One of the reasons I jumped over here, you were talking about the, uh, the intersection between uh, ecological, uh, I guess if you to say destruction let me, let me or thriving. It, and, let me make and it clear. Can, we yes, call it the please. triple bottom line. In, in, the world, in the corporate world, the triple bottom line uh, essentially means people, planet, and profit. We need to balance uh, financial performance with 
social performance and ecological performance. We have to have uh, uh, economic solutions uh, with equity and not forgetting about the economy. And this is known as the triple bottom line. Again, people, planet, and profit is a good way to uh, good way the three good P's. to think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, All three need to work, and, and whatever then, solutions need to work for those three. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was going to ask yeah. if you could speak a little bit. When a lot of people think about uh, environmental issues, environmental <clears throat> movement, they kind of juxtapose as a complete opposite right. job creation. Right. Can you talk about how the two actually yes. don't have to be in contradiction with one another, but yes. can actually be? Yes, I'd like out. to speak about that. There is a fear on behalf particularly of conservatives uh, to acknowledge, talk about, or seek any solutions around climate change. The, the, the problem is that they don't, have, they don't really have a problem with the science. They have a problem with the solutions. Mm -hmm. they, uh, they are, until they are disabused of the myth that any solutions must result in bigger government taking away our freedoms, killing the economy and making us poor, because those are the fears, um, we're not going to get anywhere. And the, the reality is, is there is a solution that would help the economy, it would put people to work, it would, it's been economically modeled to create 2.8 million jobs. We're talking about a carbon fee and dividend, which uh, is put forth by Citizens Climate Lobby, and there, there are many other groups that are calling for a revenue-neutral carbon tax or fee. We like to call it a fee because, well, two reasons. The T word freaks people out. And number two, you shouldn't call it a tax if the government doesn't keep it. And the carbon fee and dividend is a 100% refund back to American citizens to protect us from increasing prices. Uh, so it's a, a fee, a dividend, and a border adjustment we won't get into at this venue now. A little too wonky for our situation at the moment. But there's a situa there is a solution that would create jobs, promote American ingenuity and competition, put America to work, save 13,000 lives. It is a small government fiscally conservative market-based solution that's music should be music to the ears of any principled conservative and it also would draw down emissions faster than any uh, policy that you have ever heard of certainly faster than any regulation and i'm not saying we don't need certain protections but in fact if there's a market-based solution that would blow past certain regulations or protections wouldn't you be for that yeah right. so absolutely one one last thing before it gets uh, too, too loud again yeah yeah you were talking uh, before about a bipartisan commission. Yes, of a caucus. 19, yeah, of yes. a caucus. You want to explain a little bit about what's yes. going on yes. there? One of the things uh, you, uh, CCL, Citizens Climate, uh, Climate Lobby, does is our, our motto is bridging the partisan divide on climate. We meet with Republicans and Democrats regularly on Capitol Hill and in district offices. We form relationships with them. When you know who your representative is, that's a good thing. But when they know your name, that's a better thing. And what has happened is... A bipartisan climate solutions caucus, a working group of both Democrats and Republicans, most people don't know this has happened, it's not in the headlines, this was created February last year with Carlos Curbelo, who was at the time a freshman Republican, and a Democrat, uh, Ted Deutsch, out of West Palm Beach. When this formed with one and one Bloomberg, Bloomberg News called it the caucus to save the world. New York Times called it a surprising step towards sanity. It grew to two and two and three and three. Uh, up until the election, it was 10 and 10, and then it was a bit disrupted. Uh, one person retired, people were voted out, it was six and nine. It, just weeks after the election, grew back to 10 and 10, 12 and 12. As of last count, just a couple of days ago, it's up to 19 Republicans, 19 Democrats coming to the table in a toxic-free environment to talk about economically viable solutions to the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And this is amazing. Most people don't know this is happening, that there is, in fact, 
while we read the headlines and we're rightfully very upset by the disturbing news, a lot of the headlines underscore and highlight the controversy, and a lot of it is serious. But what is not on the headlines is the huge amount of momentum in Capitol Hill, in Congress particularly, among Republicans who are moving the needle, who are bucking their party, manning up and womaning up in some cases, and um, summoning the leadership and courage required to actually lead. And that's what we need. And that is what happens when enough people are able to develop their own personal and political power. And that's something we do at citizensclimatelobby.org. We're 60,000 volunteer members, 40, uh, four, 400 chapters as of last count. We're worldwide, but mostly North America. Big Canadian footprint. And we were very helpful in creating and promoting this caucus. All right, thank you, Greg. Bob English, a former Republican congressman from South Carolina, whose views on climate change and some other things retired him from politics in 2010, sooner than he'd planned. Bob currently heads the group RepublicEN.org, which carries the tagline, Energy Optimists, Climate Realists. Bob English, welcome to Immense Possibilities. Great to be with you, Jeff. Thank you. What's the core purpose and approach of RepublicEN.org? Um, we engage and enroll and educate conservatives about free enterprise answers to climate change. At its core, what is the best free enterprise approach to, to addressing climate change? Following the principle of accountability, basically. Um, it's, it's a core tenet of conservatism that we should all be accountable for actions. It underlies um, our political philosophy and for people of faith, it underlies even a, um, a, the, the, the faith uh, that uh, human beings are responsible moral actors. And so accountability is a key. It's just a matter of putting all the cost in on all the fuels and eliminating all the subsidies. Then in the liberty of enlightened self-interest, 300 million plus consumers in America would be looking for better, cleaner options. And if we uh, do this through an effective border adjustment so that we tax, uh, apply the carbon tax on imports as though they were made here, then we would get 7 billion people in on the enlightened self-interest of looking for the better, cleaner, faster, cheaper fuels because they'd be paying the true cost of that energy they're using. And at that point, Innovation happens much more rapidly than government regulations or mandates could ever imagine. But the principle we're following of accountability um, is uh, was enunciated pretty well by Dr. Friedman, Milton Friedman, on the Phil Donahue show in the 80s, where he talks about, to Phil Donahue and Phil Donahue asked him, well, what would you do about pollution? 
And uh, Dr. Friedman says, well, you tax it, of course. And then Dr. Friedman goes on to explain with bedrock conservatism that when something that one party is doing affects third parties that aren't part of a contract, there's a role for the government in saying, no, no, you've got to pay those consequences. You can't externalize those, those, uh, those costs. You have to internalize them to your product. But we want to eliminate the biggest subsidy of all which is the ability to belch and burn for free without accountability. That's the one that causes the market distortion. I'm in, Bob. What, what's in the way? What are the biggest obstacles? The problem is that the solution seems anathema. Bigger government, larger control of our lives, doing with less. Understand that this is a place where a rub comes between you and conservatives. Because way too many conservatives here, way too many progressives talking about doing with less. And we have the sense that we're going to walk and eat bugs. <laughs> or perhaps that we're going to shiver or sweat in the dark, depending on the time of year. And most people say, you know, that's not very attractive, um, especially conservatives. Give me a paragraph that is very attractive to conservatives. The, the attractive would be this. What if we follow the principle that we know works of accountability? That blessings flow from accountability. Havoc flows from the lack of it. What if we just made all fuels accountable and eliminated all the subsidies so there's no longer a government putting its thumb on the scales for this one over that one? No more lobbying about that. And then we just watch the free enterprise system deliver innovation to willing customers demanding it because they see their true cost of energy on their meter and at the pump. Is our current system of campaign financing an obstacle to this? Yeah, it's not just campaign cash that explains it. It explains some, some percentage of the problem we face, but the larger percentage really is just this, this uh, lack of faith in the future and the lack of our, our, our belief in innovation and our ability to do things. And it's rejectionism. It's rejection of the science of climate change, rejection of all things Obama, of course, and rejection more fundamentally, the idea that we can come together and solve really big challenges. And that that's what we must overcome. There are some who still want to debate the validity of climate change and the degree of human activity as a cause of all that. Do you engage in those conversations? Are they, is there any value in that anymore? And why or why not? You know, if somebody wants to dispute the science of climate change, it really is somewhat a waste of time. Um, what we choose to do is actually just blow right over them and say, you know, listen, if you're listening to this show and you just heard a climate disputer um, uh, say that the talking points from the Heartland Institute, you know they're wrong. And But you know probably that what they're really saying is they haven't liked the solution they've heard yet. So let's talk about the solution. Is that to say what sometimes sounds like denial at bottom isn't really denial? Yeah, it's. we really think that most of the time it's solution aversion. If I tell you, Jeff, here's the plan of surgery for that back problem you're having. I hope you don't have one. But anyway, if, if there were, um, first we're going to take off your head. Um, when you got your head off, when you work on your spine, then we put your head back on. You're going to say to me, thanks, doc. I'm feeling a lot better. I don't have a back problem because the solution is nuts. You're not going to take my head off. 
what conservatives have heard is a big government that wants to run their lives, uh, headquartered at the UN, maybe. Um, and they just think, this is nuts. We're not doing that. Um, but if they could hear that there's a small government solution with a very small footprint, with the government simply being the honest cop on the beat that says all cost in, all subsidies out, then they could, uh, they could, they could stop shrinking in science denial and realize that this concept of accountability is what they're really good at. What about your work right now gives you the most hope that we can navigate our way to a viable climate future? And what discourages you the most? Most encouraging thing is being with young conservatives because they get it. Um, they, they don't shrink in science denial. Um, and they want their party to not be the grumpy old party. They want it to be the grand opportunity party. The thing that's most discouraging is dealing with their parents and grandparents. <laughs> they're, they're a little bit harder for us to reach. Um, because many people, you know, particularly folks that feel like they've seen too much change in their lives, they just don't want any more change. And they want to rely on the current fuels we've got. They don't want to hear about innovation. Um, but somehow we need to make it less threatening to them. And we think really that the way through their, to their heads is through their hearts. And mostly those hearts are going to be opened by their kids talking to them. So um, we're counting a lot on young conservatives helping us reach their parents and grandparents. It's really important that we realize that um, we're doing an experiment uh, within our own homes, our, our one common home, as, uh, as the Pope says. You know, this is really pretty irrational to be having a food fight here while we're doing the experiment on ourselves. Why don't we get together and figure out what could work for both progressives and conservatives? Um, and we think there's an answer there. Um, and um, But it does take, uh, it, it, it takes some acceptance of the science and the, uh, and the existence of a free market solution for conservatives. And it takes some give on the part of progressives to be willing to to work with conservatives and to hear it expressed their way. Okay, here we are, back in the future. Everything you just heard, or skipped past, was from last year when I produced this episode back in May 2017, and now I want to address two of the major questions that came up in response. Uh, but first, a quick recap of the commentary I did on this show last time. The main point was to dispel the idea created by this episode that this cap and dividend policy was actually created by conservatives. I pointed out last year that if you look up cap and dividend on YouTube, the second oldest clip you'll find is actually a video that I produced starring my old boss at the climate change NGO where I used to work, and it should go without saying that it was not a conservative NGO doing that early work on cap and dividend. So whether you're a conservative who thought you liked this idea because it's conservative, or a progressive who was feeling wary of the concept for exactly the same reason, you're both wrong and you should either switch places or, or better yet, stop caring about the source of an idea and start focusing on the idea itself. A good idea is a good idea and if it happens to cross ideological boundaries, then that's just icing on the cake. 
Now, one response I got to this episode was from a Canadian who pointed out that a policy similar to this one was implemented up in British Columbia and didn't work because it was implemented poorly, to which I reply that that isn't an argument against cap and dividend, that's an argument against implementing cap and dividend poorly. And there will be a bit more detail on that topic at the end, but the other comment I received a time or two by email and voicemail was about perverse incentives. So to finish up today, let's first hear a voicemail I received on this topic last year, followed by a brand new clip from the Next System Project, in which they speak with some activists pushing for a cap and dividend policy in Washington, D.C., about some of the finer points of how the economics of this idea are likely to break down. Hey, Jay, this is Chris from Fairfax uh, calling in response to your conservative solution to climate change episode. Well, I am a, a democratic socialist, and what strikes me uh, immediately is that this uh, cap and dividend plan seems an awful like, lot like a universal basic income. So it, it really doesn't, to me, seem like a, like a conservative solution in in fact it, it it seems like a like a socialist policy now it's not you know anywhere near like the, the real socialist universal basic income proposal of like a thousand dollars a month but still as such i don't hate the policy and 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 uh it seems overall pretty good i'm just not really i'm, I'm skeptical i'm not really convinced that it's going to have the desired effect where, where the whole industry will, you know, make a dramatic shift toward efficiency and, and the better energy economy. And I'll admit part of that probably has to do with the fact that even though this is, in essence, a socialist policy proposal, it came from a conservative and just sort of in my experience conservatives don't really know how the economy works or, or else you know they wouldn't support uh, tax cuts for wealthy people so i am a bit skeptical that it's going to work effectively and have the desired effect it seems that if you are taxing inefficiency if you're taxing output of carbon, then won't people just support businesses that are wasteful to increase the, the, the amount of the dividends? I don't know. Maybe not. And and I, I will say that I did sort of change my opinion a little when you revealed that, that you and, and Mike Tidwell and, and Representative Chris Van Hollen, who's the, the senator now, I have a lot of respect for him, you guys sort of you know, proposed it several years ago. And now I'm starting to doubt your judgment because I still have so many questions about if this policy is actually going to work. Like they mentioned it would create jobs. How exactly? Where is, where is that money coming from? Now, I, I know that as a universal basic income that, you know, increased spending from consumers is going to create jobs. To me... As a socialist, I really think that we need heavy investment in wind power manufacturing and installing uh, renewable uh, energy sources like wind and solar and upgrading homes, installing geothermal, etc. 
And anything short of that, to me, is not a great policy. Now, I'm not one, generally, I'm not one to uh, let the good be the enemy of the great. Uh, I don't think that cap and dividend is a great policy. I don't think it's a killer app, but I think it's a good policy, and I definitely uh, will support it, even though the idea came from the conservative. Anyway, Jay... Thanks uh, for the show. Keep up the great work. So now we are looking to the put a price on EDC campaign that uh, you guys are working on. So in your own words, can you explain what this initiative is aiming to achieve? So what we're trying to do here in the district is pass the number one climate policy, which is putting a price on carbon. And we're, we're doing it in a really inclusive, progressive way, both in the process and the policy. There are 31 organizations in our coalition, and we hope to soon pass this uh, progressively rising price on carbon with a carbon fee on as much of the fossil fuels used in the district as possible, rebate the majority of the revenue back to D.C. residents as a quarterly check or electronic bank transfer, and then have some revenue set aside as well for green investments and small business tax credits. Yeah, that's great. I do have a follow-up question, if Adam don't, doesn't mind. Uh, so why you decide to dedicate the vast majority of the tax revenue to the progressive rebates? Because I know there's other tax initiatives that actually focus more in the vast majority going to green energy projects. So I was just curious to understand the decision behind the rebate. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a fair question. There's a lot of different ways you can use the money. We've chosen to go with the most progressive revenue allocation possible. So if uh, we consider what a carbon fee does, it's really increasing the dirty energy prices for every consumer. And you absolutely need to return some revenue back to consumers in order for it not to be a, a regressive tax, meaning that the lowest income uh, people in our community would be hardest hit and we'd be basically trying to solve the climate crisis on the backs of the poor. And that's just not a value that's supported in our um, community and our coalition. So we wanted to flip that on its head and see if we could actually tackle economic injustice and uh, the huge income gap in D.C. with this policy um, and actually make low and middle income households better off than they were before. There is also revenue set aside for those clean energy and energy efficiency projects, but um, not as much as, as might be the case elsewhere. The second part of the answer there is that we believe the price signal itself is actually what's going to drive the majority of those innovations and investments. It's the lack of private capital moving into these spaces more than what public revenue raised from a carbon fee can achieve. There was a report came out recently that showed that um, increased inequality actually leads to uh, more devastation and more climate change, you know. Um, and so one of the reasons why uh, we need to invest more in people, because uh, addressing inequality actually um, addresses climate change at the same time, you know, because people have more money in their pockets, they're able to buy uh, renewable energy, um, they're able to invest more uh, energy efficiency measures for their own individual selves. And in general, they're just like well off uh, and more healthy because people who are more healthy are more likely to see their surrounding environment uh, in a better light, you know. And so right. um, uh, investing more in people actually uh, and actually addressing uh, inequality actually addresses climate change too. So, With regard to uh, it would be 
better for businesses um, because people would have more money in their pocket and they'd probably spend it, especially if, if working class people got that money. Um, but would do you expect businesses would inevitably pass this on to consumers? Um, and uh, would that kind of temper any additional spending power? Or is that not something we're worried about? Is the point that kind of the fee aspect of this works as kind of a disincentive toward more um, projects and, and goods and services that are that produce more carbon emissions? Uh, I feel like I wasn't clear there. but um, So this is such a resident-friendly policy design that consumers on average, the, the average family or household in D.C. is getting $2 back for every $1 that they would see in a pass-down fee at 100% pass-down, which isn't that's the, the worst case scenario, let's say, which is not guaranteed by any means. Um, the lowest income um, individuals in the district are going to get an even greater share of the revenue than everyone else just to make sure that they're made whole. So they're going to be getting $4 for every one. And that means that, you know, there's really no scenario where this doesn't end up being um, really a money maker. The beginnings of a universal basic income actually is part of the vision of this this campaign um, for residents in D.C. Now, the impact on the economy at large, which is going to be um, the kind of pictures being released on the 27th with this report, but we've already seen the data and it shows that the, the economy stays intact. Like we have actually a slight uptick in jobs and GDP. And that's going back to Jeremiah's point where it's stimulative. You know, there's there's a lot more uh, money flowing through the economy because you don't get your rebate check at the same time that your bill goes up. Right. Um, and so they're kind of disassociated in, in, in the consumer's mind over time because they know there's this carbon fee and they know that it's going up. That's where consumer spending choices change and people start to maybe save and look ahead and say, well, this time I'm really going to put that insulation in the attic or maybe I should buy that LED light bulb or maybe I can just ride my bike today instead of getting the car. Right. And then they can save even more money. And they'll have the, the, the purchasing power to make those decisions. Exactly. Right. I feel it. you know, more money flowing in the economy and people spending more like businesses are, uh, you know, increasing their profit. There's no reason to really. Uh, drastically change like their business model based upon you know this uh, policy you know mainly because they're actually uh, you know they're not going to be like losing like a ton of money because you know they're going to have a ton of money coming in right. especially a lot of people uh, spending so yeah and the hope is that they're so much better equipped than the average home say to make big investments in energy efficiency and buying renewable energy credits or entering into long-term power purchase agreements for renewable energy. There's already a number of programs in the district which businesses aren't taking full advantage of right now because for renewable energy because there's not this push yet. There's not a reason for them to sign up and, you know, really uh, really jump into the, the policies that the district already has in place. Um, we should be transparent, though, that it will, you know, it it will mean a greater um, cost for some businesses, depending on how energy intensive they are. Um, and that's really the point. And I think <coughs> and the fundamental um, truth that we have to accept as a society to deal with climate change is that right now there's a lot of false profit. There's yeah. a lot of take, robbing from yeah. the future. And so the money that we're making now for the kind of lifestyles and products and energy consumptive ways that we've gotten used to, like, 
why would we hold on to that and kick and scream about that more than just like actually having a livable planet tomorrow? Right. Business as usual isn't going to work. Exactly. (laughs) It is going to impact some businesses. There's going to be chart choices that need to be made. I think we see across the world that when people uh, are lack self-sufficiency with either money in their pockets or natural plentiful renewable natural resources around them i mean even thinking of like firewood for instance like if if communities and, and and families are stretched then they'll use all of the available resources without a thought to you know will they be there tomorrow that that your your runway for the future shortens to just this immediate moment and that generally leads to um, unsustainable consumption, right? Because you just don't have the time or space to think about how you're going to plan. And that's where we see um, a really vicious cycle with climate change, because if people are stretched by, you know, weather disasters, by crop failures, by um, their livelihoods being destroyed, then there is no saving. There's no planning, right? There's no longer term, like what about not only tomorrow, but seven generations in the future. Um, and so that gets perpetuated by the same token. If you have a system where, you know, the 1% control the entire, uh, like wealth of the world, that's, that's incredibly destructive. And NASA has also, um, even studied this with a, uh, about six or so years ago, drawing the direct link between income inequality, um, and climate change. You have this pattern of civilizational collapse over millennia, where if there's an elite, that controls these resources and the responsibility and care for them is not distributed throughout the population, um, then things get out of balance really fast. And I think that's what we're seeing now is this, you know, either spend like there's no tomorrow because you have the money or there literally is no tomorrow because you have nothing. Um, we need the middle ground. We need there to be uh, everyone in, in our country empowered to do the right thing and empowered to live their lives. And that's, that's really what the, the fee and rebate program is all about. Uh, this this feels almost like a, a a silly question, but it seems on one level, um, are there is there kind of a almost a perverse incentive here if like um, there's a there's a carbon fee on use and uh, it benefits people when it gets in their pocket? Would that lead some people to um, maybe not be as interested in kind of a drawdown of climate emissions? What, do, do you see what I mean by perverse incentive? Like if I if uh, if I by buying a new Humvee, I think that it might contribute in some way. Uh, obviously, of course, uh, someone wouldn't want it to come out of their pocket and then go back into their pocket. But would this w- would there be any kind of perverse incentive here with regard to carbon emissions uh, being tied to money in your pocket? Um, that's a very common question. Okay. Um, and well, I that, think that's not just me. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's definitely not. Um. The trick here is that you're not just getting money. You're okay. seeing the prices of dirty energy dependent products that you might buy go up and you're, you're repelled, right? Okay. So at the same time that you're like, Hey, actually I can't have, like, I don't want to buy that Humvee because I know that gas is going to go up, uh, you know, a couple bucks in the coming years. I can't afford that. You're also getting the money in your pocket to then go, you know, get the hybrid, let's say. So the, it's like because money is fungible, right? And you're not making the same decisions, the same economic decisions, um, all the time. You're going to consider, you know, okay, here's a, here's an expensive polluting car. Here's a cheaper, 
um, clean energy uh, option, and then you get the money later to, or before to actually pay for that better decision. The trick is that the fee has to keep increasing over time. And that's what we've seen in British Columbia that's had a carbon um, tax in place for many years. Theirs was capped. The increase was capped. And so as soon as the tax stopped rising, pollution went up mm. again. And so that's why our proposal, you know, starting at $20, going up $10 every year, um, that's really where you start to see the kind of technological innovation and the long-term um, investing and consumer decisions start to change. Mm.